So we are up to number 271, Conversations with Yogananda. No, no, we're up to 273. We are in the sex is not such a good idea period, so we have to go through this again. There's another one. When sex temptation comes, the master said, say to yourself, Lord, your power is manifesting in me. I will use it to grow stronger in myself and to create through proper channels. Then inhale, tense, exhale, and relax. Repeat that several times. Don't let the frogs of weakness kick you around. That is how my master Sri Yukteswar put it. The more you control sex, the more powerful you will become in every way. But if you declare weakly, Oh, I have to spill it. You will enslave yourself for life. The more you give in, the less you will be able to free yourself from the meshes of delusion. That is such an unpopular paragraph. But it is so true. You know, it's one of... I had this extremely funny experience 35 years ago in or longer in uh, Seattle, Washington. When I was traveling up there, beginning to teach... And I was giving, we didn't have a center, and I was just teaching publicly. And these two women, who happened to be Hungarian, two Hungarian women, just became completely enamored of what we were doing. And they just, uh, they were just so excited, and they just were really all for Master and Ananda and me and everything. And they bought all these books. And then early one morning, I got this kind of panicked phone call from one of the sisters. And she insisted that she had to come over to where I was staying immediately and she had bought Whispers from Eternity and there was some poem with a line something like this in it you know just overcome sex don't let the frogs of weakness kick you around and they looked at me and they said is that what this is really about (laughs) and they were just and they felt so betrayed that they left and never came back (laughs) so You have to understand all this in the right way. And I should actually read. In fact, I think I probably will read the next one because Swami puts this in in right order. Let me see what comes next. Here it is. Um, Number 274, and then we'll discuss it. Kamala Silva, Master says, is the only one I told to leave here and marry. Others have left for that purpose, but they haven't soared in God as she has One man told me he was leaving to marry. Wherever I am, he solemnly assured me, I will always follow you and meditate daily. You won't, I told him. Your place is here. If you give in to delusion, you will lose the inner clarity you've gained. Well, he did leave, and in time, he forgot his resolution to be loyal and to meditate regularly. Never forget this. Evil has power. If one sides with it, he will find himself imprisoned by it. And now Swami speaks again. I, Walter, want to emphasize that the Master was not against marriage as such. He even saw it as spiritually wholesome, provided two people live together in the right spirit. People who abandon their spiritual calling to get married, however, are leaving a life of dedication to high ideals to pursue their own personal desires. To do that is to move in the wrong direction. It isn't the fact of being married or living a normal life in the world that pulls one down. 
It is that one who is lukewarm in his devotion and chooses the world has made a choice that will pull him down. As the Master put it, it isn't where your body is that determines how spiritual you are. It's where you are in your consciousness. I have noticed over the years that the first thing most renunciates do who leave their monastic calling is get married. What that almost invariably means is a voluntary reinvestment in self-interest with the endless desires and attachments that such interest entails. Now, this, to give you context, Conversations with Yogananda is everything that Swami Kriyananda wrote down when he was with Master. Many of the conversations took place when Master was talking to the monks. And Swamiji, this was the third book that Swamiji wrote from the notebooks he made during his three and a half years with Master. The first book he made was um, The Essence of Self-Realization, in which he organized sayings according to categories and then you know, made complete ideas um, for life, you know, for God is the only answer, karma and reincarnation. That book is marvelous. It's just Master's words. And the, well, the first book he did, that's not true, the first book he did was his own autobiography, The Path, Life with Yogananda, in which the whole second half of the book is what it was like to live with Master, and it's just completely filled with his experiences and the words he wrote down and so on. So that was a cohesive narrative. Then uh, Essence of Self-Realization was even more um, of an organized presentation of the essential ideas of the essence of self-realization. Then, in 2003, actually, which was, of course, really far toward the end of Swami's life. He lived 10 more years, but it was still toward the end. He, 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 he still had more in the notebooks, and he, he needed to do something with it, so he wrote this book. And so this book, even when he started writing it, he said he wasn't sure how he was going to organize it. The path was a narrative, the essence of self-realization was really strictly by topic. And what he actually said he ended up doing is he started at the first page of the notebook and he went to the last page. And so the sequence of the book is just more or less the way it was in the book there. He, I mean, it seems to sort of cluster around topics sometimes, but it goes from uh, aliens coming to earth and sex temptation for monks to... Um, politics to, you know, it's just, it just goes in every direction possible. And Swami made no, um, he did, as you, as you see when you read it, he, he editorialized and commented and explained because he felt too often the books that are put out by highly evolved teachers, the words just sit there and sometimes they need something around them to help people really understand what was intended, because that's the point. Just to, it's, the point is to help people, not merely to record. So, when he writes, like he was writing there, which was advice to the monks, and just telling them so strongly, as strongly as he did, that doesn't mean that he would give that advice to everyone. But it also means that it's true. And so what we're always working with on the spiritual path, especially when you come to renunciation, sex is only part of it, but everything that has to do with renunciation is, it's like 
it's a very stark and it's very powerful and it's extremely unequivocal and it's all true. And so there's a tremendous uh, desire sometimes on the part of the people presenting it in, in my position that I want to soften the blow so that people will just feel like they can be a little bit more like they actually are and still be on the spiritual path because people get very nervous. At the same time, it's doing everyone an absolute disservice to pretend that these are not the teachings. You know, it's just, these are the teachings. This is a path in which every single thing about the material world will eventually be transcended. This is not a path where we call ourselves spiritual and then just kind of keep on just the same way and think that it's just fine. It isn't fine at all. From the point of view of final God realization. But that is the science of the spiritual life which is everything that draws your attention outward, is ultimately going to dilute your capacity to have an inward focus. Swamiji, at one point, he, we, were, we were having some conversation about sexuality, and he was talking, uh, let me, I can't even remember clearly what, what he was talking about, but I remember he said to me, he said, I wish we could talk about these things in a more, in an easier way. I mean, he didn't, he didn't mean in a less strict way, he said he just wishes it was easier to talk about sex, as he put it, it's a bodily imperative. And he said we have a number of bodily imperatives. We're, we're cold, we're hungry, we get sleepy, and this is simply one of them. And how we work with the imperatives of the body is how we work with the spiritual path. Because it's the imperatives of the body and the, the senses going outward that distract us from our inner reality. And it's, it's actually, it's objective, it's mechanical. It's just, the way, it's just the way it works. But in our age, especially in this country at this time, and in mixed company, it's just not easy always to do because people can't hold their minds in a calm and impersonal way. And it's perfectly understandable. It's just, it's just the way we're made. But... Oh, but, th but the science of it is there, there is just a simple scientific reality to what happens to the physical body, what happens to the consciousness, what happens to the whole trajectory of your life. If you allow physical imperatives of all kind, and sex is the most powerful except for survival itself, to become the way you're, you're dominant thinking. However, to get from where most people are to there we don't usually get there by announcing, well, this is the highest path, that's what I'm going to walk on. I mean, Swamiji made the simple comment. He said, celibacy is not really good for most people. It's just too much of a strain. It just sets up too much inner tension, and it just, it's just not good for most people. And in a balanced society, not the one we're living in, ha-ha, you might have noticed, in a balanced society, marriages are arranged, People are just, you know, given a householder life. And only a very few people go to be monastics because you have to really be at a certain stage where um, you're actually able to transcend that energy and not merely have it just dominate and make you crazy. You know, it's for most people it's better if it's just grounded in a monogamous, wholesome relationship, except for those for whom it isn't. I mean, that it's better 
that celibacy actually gradually liberates you instead of making you, as Swami said, instead of making you, sometimes it, instead of making you lighter and lighter, it just makes you tighter and tighter. <laughs> that was the phrase he used. But in our society, where everything is so mixed up, where stable relationships are very difficult to come to, um, where there's the, the whole tradition of arranged marriage, which has its arguments on both sides, but, you know, just the the stability of society where people can find their place and just settle into it, it's all gone. Plus, we're in a, an absolutely sexually obsessed age, so there's no, um, there's no respite from that energy in our society. The advertisements, the entertainment, the fashions, is just, there's just no respite. So, and, and there's no easy trajectory so it's, a, it's just a very, very complicated issue. And then we have a whole sort of mm, what Swami calls man-made teaching, which is not really revelations from the divine. It's just man-made. It's just people saying, this sounds better than what the scriptures say. So I'm just going to declare that we're going to just live like this, but we're just going to say... It's, you know, it's an ancient teaching and it's true and so we'll indulge all our senses and we'll just, instead of trying to transcend any of the bodily imperatives, we'll just indulge them and don't we all feel better and doesn't God want us to be happy and, you know, it just gets crazy, okay? So we have to just listen to Master say, you get drawn into this and the next thing you know, your whole incarnation is sunk. And he was also talking you know, one of the things that Swamiji Kriyananda has worked so hard to create and has created very successfully through the Ananda communities is the place where the line between the monastic and the married is not so rigid. You know, that, that's, the, that's the whole point in our community. Um, you, you live for, many people live for a time as monastics and then they become householders. Some people live monastics all the way through. But, but you can be a monastic and then you can be a householder and it's not like you change, you know, you change your neighborhood but you don't have to throw away your whole spiritual life because in the age we're living in um, it's trying to be a more integrated reality plus monastic life is very hard to hold right now but that doesn't make it any less true, less powerful or less appropriate for those for whom it is appropriate. It's, it's just a little more complicated. Now, when Master was talking to those monks, if they weren't in the monastery, where were they going to go? And, and it also, I asked Swamiji the, the question once, you know, uh, what, what, you know, what is the danger of married life? If you've been monastic, you get married. He said, the difficulty with not being celibate, the difficulty with being married and, and having even a, wholesome sexual relationship, it, it puts into, you know, you begin to think that desires are there to be satisfied. That was his words. It just, it, it awakens the thought in your mind that desires are there to be satisfied. And that's how the sort of the whole slippery slope gets started. You know, when you're, when you're in, on, in the monastic side, I mean, I remember this when I was a nun when I was in my 20s. I lived in this tiny little trailer. I was talking to some of you about it the other day. 
it was so small that when I energized, I could only raise my hand to there when I was standing up. So I always did my energization like that. If we, it was too cold to go outside, and there was only one spot where I could go like this. I had to be really careful, you know, sort of where I was. And it was, it was perfect. I had a, a place to sleep, a place to meditate, a place where I cooked, a place where I sat and read. I mean, and that was about how big it was. It was perfect. I loved it. I lived there for many years, and I was very happy in it. And I, I had nothing. I just, I, I, I literally earned $50 a month, a, yeah, a month, which Swami, I was working for him directly at that point, and he would open his wallet, you know, at the first of the month, and he would hand me $50, which was just plenty. All I had to buy was a little food and propane to heat my trailer. I mean, I, my parents are, are, were not impoverished, so I had, I had security behind me, but I never thought about them as my security, but it was there. But the thing was, I looked forward to having less and less. I was just so delighted to have so little, and I just imagined a life in which even the t little bit I had would be too much, and it would just all be taken away from me. I mean, it just seemed so free to just have nothing. And, and I've, I've said to people, it's not hard to have no money. I mean, it would be hard to be hungry. I w certainly wasn't there. And it would be hard if I desperately needed something to have nowhere to turn. That's a whole different level than I'm talking about. But uh, to have no money is really simple. You can't buy anything. <laughs> so it just, you, it just, the whole thought never arises. You eat. You get propane for your trailer because I could never live without heat. Some of them tried to live without heat, but I never even made an effort. It had to be warm. had to be dry. And I had to have something to eat. I could be very simple. But beyond that, it was impossible. So, so you were in a state of total relaxation all the time because you didn't think that your desires could be satisfied. So what was the point of having them? It just wasn't an option. When you have a little money, that's what's hard because then some of your desires can be satisfied. But you, you can see how the whole thing works. And so sex has a whole huge reality because it can take over people's consciousness and cloud people's judgment and it gets so involved in the magnetism between two people which activates, you know, countless other things having to do with comfort and security and recognition and, you know, somebody to understand me. It just goes on and on and on. But without that essential magnetism, very little of that starts, or it doesn't start with so much power as it has once that gets involved. So when Master's talking to those monks, and he's, you know, he's looking at them, and bear in mind, think what he's seeing. He's seeing the trajectory of how many incarnations that it took them to get to the point where they incarnated when Master incarnated. They found him, they came, they're living in the monastery. I mean, these are not small blessings. And, and there's a, a reality also to the spiritual path. When, when God gives you a great big opportunity and you just say, no, I don't think so. And you kind of have this thought in your mind, I'll just catch the next train when it comes through. But it doesn't. You know, when, when you've, you've gotten yourself all the way to there and then I don't mean, well, it's very complicated. I don't want to make it black and white. But if you actually literally just 
don't know what you have and walk away with it from it casually, thinking you'll pick it up over here. You usually have to go a long cycle to get back to the point. So Master's looking at all of that, and he's looking at people throwing away an extraordinary opportunity, you know, not for some high-level spiritual partnership, but just out of restlessness. Because that's how he puts it. Kamala was the only one I, I told to get married, and others have left to marry, but they're not soaring in God like Kamala is. So he's also telling us, it's not, well, it's obedience to the guru also, but he's also telling us it's the quality of the relationship and what moves you to move. And later, in the next one or another, he talks about a couple of different monks, including Norman Paulson. And he says, you know, Norman left, but his heart is always with me. He never left me. And Norman went on, went on and lived an extremely colorful and highly varied life after he left the monastery, started another community. I mean, I think he had several different wives. He just had a lot of experiences. But Master just said he never left me. Swami said the same thing. He just never did. It was, it, it, he was doing all that, but he didn't change his heart. But this other man that he refers to, oh, I promise I'm going to be just the same. But Master's looking at him and knows that the man is deluding himself. And so his, his force of energy is also based on what he's looking at. What he's looking at, what he knows. And he's, he's trying hard to hold people through these karmic tests. There's, a, there's a, just a terrifying statement in the, in the path, I think it is, where one of the nuns leaves to get married. And Master said, if she had resisted for just 24 hours more, she would never have had to deal with that desire again. You know, it's, so every time, every time I'm about to crash on something, I think 24 more hours, maybe just 24 more hours. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, not, it's not quite the same reality, but how close are we? What do we know? Yeah. And then, then the, the, issue, the word here is compulsion. You know, Swami used the word bodily imperatives. It's not a question of what you do. It's whether or not it's a free choice. And that's what, that's what Master's saying. You know, if you, just, if you just let this energy kick you around, you'll never be free. And he's not really talking about sex per se. He's talking about the fact that we think our desires have to be satisfied. And we have to rush out and satisfy our desires because we don't know how to separate ourselves from the senses and from the physical imperatives. You all understand this? It's very important to be able to take this teaching at the highest level for what it is and still be comfortable living our lives as we actually are. And this is the very, you know, this is a very delicate line here. What this is the difference between the art and the science. That's what I was saying a long time ago. The science of it is the science of it. We need to transcend every bodily imperative. And there, is no, there are no exceptions to it, period. At the same time, the art of it is to know how to get from here to there. And what is actually going to take you in the right direction without warping your consciousness. I mean, because complexes. Swami says, you know, simple... Simple mistakes are simple mistakes because you just make them or you know it's not the, your ideal, but you've done it, there you go. You, you marry, you 
I remember what happened when some people were beginning to get married is people were getting married and then pretending they were still monks. And so I mean, just when he heard you know, some of this, he just said to some of those people, you cannot have it both ways. You know, you've accepted this relationship. You cannot make a decision by yourself now. You've, you've put yourself in relationship to someone and their reality must be taken into account. You can't just declare that this is what I'm going to do. If you didn't want to have to take someone else into account, you shouldn't have done this. And now that you have, this is what you're dealing with. But it's much more about, you know, who we are inside and what we're thinking about. Where your body is doesn't matter. It's where your consciousness is. But the art of it is to not lower the teachings to meet your present reality, but not become so discouraged by your present reality that you think you won't ever be able to progress. And, when you, and when you, then you just live as you are with the full knowledge that this is the truth and eventually I'll get there. I mean, one of the reasons that Master only ever spoke about soulmates, apparently, was once when he was interpreting the Bible, that which God has joined together, let no man put asunder, which has been interpreted by many churches as meaning that divorce is against God's law. And Master did not say that. Master said, you know, many marriages are not really marriages before God anyway. That's really how he put it. He was actually quite cynical about it. Meaning that there's no, there's nothing holy about the alliance. It's, uh, to use his words, it's a nice shade of lipstick and an attractive bow tie. Or they sat around listening to some romantic music and got into a mood and the next thing you know they're married. Or I think, it, I don't know whether it was Swami or Master who put it this way. They begin, it was Swamiji. They begin to hear, they hear this romantic music, they begin to have these feelings, they begin to think that the person sitting next to them is causing those feelings. <laughs> I mean, it's, and the next thing you know, they're married. And then the music stops. <laughs> and they have what they really have. So, Master didn't have a lot of regard for a lot of marriages and merely because they happened or even were consecrated in a church he didn't necessarily consider them real unions but when he saw real marriages Amalita Galakuchi for example she had a, a, a brute for a husband first and then she finally kicked him out and married her accompanist she was a, a, a singer and Master said you know it's, it's a beautiful soul union it's a beautiful spiritual friendship he was he admired it he didn't disdain it in any way because he saw it as a genuine marriage in the way that God intended it to be. That's what he felt about Kamala and others. But uh, uh, the last part of this is, oh yes, so when he was talking about that Bible verse, he actually started talking about the cosmic reality that everything in creation is dual. Everything is creation. So when the soul is manifested, he just said, you're a pair. And there, th this sense somewhere that there is an actual opposite for us, Master said is true. You know, which is just like so, you don't quite know what to do with that. Swami himself endorsed it. And the whole, that whole book he wrote, the last book he wrote, Love Perfected Life Divine, which is a novel, is about soulmates. It was written first by someone else and then Swami took the plot and elevated it so that it's more, more real in that sense. But Master didn't talk about it except that one time. 
because of the most obvious thing in the world. If people believe that they're soulmates, they will totally forget God and they will just look for their soulmate. But everybody in that vibration of consciousness thinks of their soulmate as their romantic partner and fundamental in that is this huge sexual magnetism. But by definition, the way Master talks about it, you know, the real union between those soulmates is entirely of the spirit. And therefore, if there's any physical imperative in it, you're not there yet. Now, of course, many incarnations, you come and go in the, in the book that Swami wrote. That's the theme, that, that they come and they go and they, they can't quite, they're not mature enough to really have the soul unions that's destined. So they go off for other incarnations and they cross and they cross. It's a beautiful story. He took the trouble to write it. It's really quite something. And it's quite sensible. And in the end, what, the way that story is told, he first realizes that there is no possibility that they will ever be able to realize the potential of their love for each other until he starts with himself, until he becomes, well, essentially realized. So he stops looking for her in this story and simply trains himself to transcend. And then he meets her again and she realizes, she sees the potential, but she realizes that she's going to have to rise to who he is before it will ever be realized. So then she goes off he, he directs her to basically the same guru that he had. I mean, all of this is more romantic and symbolic. And then she goes through this extraordinary ordeal, but passes and essentially transcends also. Then they are finally able because they have both reached the level where they're not impelled by all the things that make it selfish and that draws us away from the divine. It's really, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's amazing to contemplate and, and the implications of it, you don't know what to do with them because it's really, it's just really gigantic. Um, so when Master is encouraging these monks and these conversations and by extension all of us not to allow these imperatives to rule our thinking it's not because he's trying to punish us because there's something wrong with the way that we're made because our longing for uh, friendship and partnership and, and intimacy, there's nothing wrong with that. What he's saying to us is, you won't get it. You won't, you, there's, you, there, there's no shortcut. You can't just sort of throw yourself into this and think that by you know, releasing all your uh, restraint and inhibitions that you will get what you want. First, you have to become powerful. And then once you're powerful and in command of your own energies, then you can direct them. But not until then. And then, there's just this whole other dimension. I mean, like, the, 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 the children of Medjugorje, who were children when they started, when these visions started coming to them, which I believe was back in the 80s, it was, it was quite a while ago in Medjugorje, Yugoslavia, where, or whatever the country is now, these six or eight children, no, not that many, maybe five, started having visions of the Virgin Mary. I, I was thinking about this because 
toward the very, very, very much toward the end of his life, 2011, 20, you know, right at the very end, 2010, 2011, Swamiji, it was probably 2011, he went on a pilgrimage to Medjugorje. It was one of the last things he did, and it's, uh, when I finish my book, there's a lot of it in there. It's really extremely gorgeous. And these children, who are now grown-ups, several of them are still seeing the Virgin Mary. Some, some, one or two of them are seeing her every day. I mean, they're still visionaries. And I believe she directed all of them to Mary. I don't think she sent any of them into monasteries. It's just really interesting, isn't it? And Swami met the, the woman who's considered to be the main visionary and her husband. He met them and spent an afternoon with them. And, you know, so it's like we don't really know where anything is going to end. We just know that if we apply ourselves with our full willpower to gaining mastery over ourselves, then that allows us to respond to God's will instead of being compelled by our own desires. That's, that's sort of really simply how I think about my own life at this point. I've been, I've been married twice and I've had two cycles of monasticism at this point in my life. Okay, and you know, it's just, that's a lot of adventures, and all of that is since I came on the spiritual path. And, and so it's, it's very interesting. The main thing that I know is that I am not free. And that's what I feel. I feel that I'm, I'm compelled by my desires. And the issue is not marriage or monasticism, the issue is being compelled by desire. And therefore losing the capacity to be still and hear divine will and respond to it. And whatever the issue is, whether it's lack of security, uh, desire for, for a partner, desire for money, ill health, whatever it is, it all comes down to whether we're compelled or whether we're free. And so that's what we practice all the time. But you have to practice it. You can't go to the gym and say, I want to be strong, put 80 pounds onto the machine. I'm going to lift 80 pounds. It's just, you'll just sit there and you won't even be able to move it. And you won't get any stronger by just pushing at it every day. It won't happen. You have to weight it appropriately and act appropriately. But it's a question of keeping your focus. And I said it once, but it's worth saying again. And not bringing the top of the mountain down to a level that you feel more comfortable with. You have to be comfortable knowing how high the mountain is and that you're just sitting at the base playing tiddlywinks and you're not ready to move yet. You know, but that's a much better position to be in to just say, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine once and he was talking about certain aspects of the path that he was attempting to do and, and how badly it worked out for him. I mean, this was a, a friend from decades. We've been doing this together for decades and he got himself in some very complicated situations and it turned out certain things that Master said he was, he was trying to do them. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I said, it never occurred to me that that applied to me. Never. I mean, of course I read those same words, but it never crossed my mind that that was a personal instruction. And it, it wasn't, it just like, I don't know. I, I never bonded to it. And he shouldn't have bonded to it either. But he was confused between the art and the science. 
So self-acceptance, just this is, to add to this is this little part that Swami said. He said when he first went to live at Mount Washington, well, he he lived there only three and a half years with Master. The three and a half years he lived at Mount Washington in Los Angeles, the SRF headquarters, with Master. Mount Washington, before Master bought it, had been a hotel. That's how Swami described it. He said while he was living there with Master, it still seemed to function as a hotel. People would check in to be disciples and then they would check out again. And he said it, it, Swami was in charge of the monks and he said it was heartrending for him because he would, how, and it, it motivated him to try to make a lifestyle for the monks that was more supportive because so many couldn't hold it. But, but Swami said the most interesting part of it was he said the main reason people left is because even though Master was, you know, he, he, had, he had no ounce of judgment in his nature. He was completely supportive. I'll, I'll take a little side on that. When I first lived at Ananda Village in the early 70s, through the mid-70s, there was a time when I was working for Swami Kriyananda and I was his secretary and I was a, his appointment secretary. And during that time on Sunday afternoons, when Swami would come up and give Sunday service, people could just sign up and he, would, he did personal counseling. He did that for many years. You could meet personally with him and talk to him. And I, since I was the interface, uh, often he would be inside his little dome there at the seclusion retreat and I would sit on the porch and then people would come and we would wait outside and then they would go in and see Swami. And he, he didn't belabor the interviews. You know, 15, 20 minutes, that was pretty much all it was. And I would sort of sit outside and I realized that my job outside was to do what I could to get people to relax. Because they had this impression, which was not wrong, that Swamiji would be able to see into their nature. And they were, for the most part, absolutely convinced that he wouldn't like what he would see and that he would judge them harshly. And I, I, I really had to think about that a lot. And I finally was able to say to people, you know, you're walking around all the time and people are judging you all the time. Probably your own family, your friends, your boss. You know, people are always looking at you and thinking, well, those shoes don't really match. You know, I don't know why she wears her hair like that. Everyone knows it looks terrible. And, you know, just like, it just, it just constantly, it's always going on. And then much worse. Oh, here's Uncle Harry again. You know, he's probably just going to bore the socks off of us, you know. Just all that stuff. Swami Kriyananda is the only person on the planet who won't do that. And then suddenly they're really scared. You know, this is the, this is the one who really wants what is best for you and that is the only thing he wants. He doesn't care where you are. You just are there and you want to be better. So how can I help? It, it, just, doesn't, it just doesn't cross his mind to think that there's something wrong with you. How could there be something wrong with you? You just are. You know, we just are. We've spent incarnations working hard to get to this point. And the only way from here is from here. So what is the point of wishing that we were somewhere else? And even more ridiculous, the one who was sent by God to try to help us, Swami said it's like if you're playing tennis and somebody hits the ball to your side and instead of hitting it back, 
you throw your racket down and said, but I wanted you to throw it here, or I wanted you to throw it on this side, you know? It's like, wherever it is, you just have to respond to it. And that's who we are. So what Swami said about Master is, people would come, and sometimes they would repudiate him. They would try to say that Master wasn't a true Master, or this or that. I mean, it was, it was what it was. But Swami said what really was, was in the presence of the clarity and the light that Master put forward, you saw yourself clearly. Because there was, you know, we, we don't see ourselves clearly most of the time because we're oscillating and everything around us is oscillating, right? So you really don't know what's you and you don't know what's them and everybody's in motion. And, and the, well, you know, just the music is playing and... Everywhere you go and the video is flashing and your own little device is going beep, beep, you know, just like this all the time. So we don't ever really come to a point of rest. I mean, yogis come to a point of rest, but you can live in this world without ever coming to a point of rest. So then people come in, came into Mount Washington and Master is at complete rest. I mean, even if he's talking and interacting and so on, but he's at complete rest. So his vibration, he's a perfect mirror. Flawless mirror, that's what Kamala called him. He's a flawless mirror. There's no oscillation. So when you're with him, it's, it's only you that's reflected back. There's no him to reflect back. You see how, com- with everyone else, it's complicated. With him, it, would, it just would be a flawless mirror. And as a consequence, you would have to realize what your own reality was. Now, for many people, that was why they wanted to be there. Because he would be a flawless mirror and I would be able to understand what to do next. But for others, it just the light was too bright and it was too clear. And they had to leave because they had to run away from it like that. And they had the good karma to have his darshan and there, there's stories, Edgar Casey tells these stories. Edgar Casey was the trance medium who did a lot of past life readings in the 40s and the 50s. And in a surprising number of his readings, he would tell someone, essentially, that you were a contemporary of Christ and you saw him. Like, you know, he didn't say you were one of the 12 or something like that because he, he, his readings were true. He wasn't flattering people. But he would say, you know, you were on the sidewalk and Jesus walked by and you saw him. Just that kind of contact. But then what was so fascinating, he would basically say, and everything that's happened since has been because of that. It's like there was that, that point that was darshan, the, 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 the sight, the light from a saint. It touched you and it redirected your entire destiny and you've been working on that ever since. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? You know, we, we, hardly, we can hardly comprehend how powerful the consciousness of these beings is. And, but it, it becomes like um, the, the center pulse of your being. And, and you, everything else you try after that has to be measured against that moment of clarity. So even those souls who, who came to Master but didn't have the karma to stay, nonetheless, Master said, 
no one ever cross my path except that it was Divine Mother's intention that they do so. I mean, that meant walking down the street just at any point. So even if they couldn't hold it, they got close enough to have that experience and then therefore their destiny would be different from then on. That's why one moment in the company of a saint will be your raft over the ocean of delusion. That's what they say. All right? Let's take a minute and then we'll come back and talk about this or whatever we'll do. You know, because I went so far into uh, soulmates there, I, I want to just add a few other, these are just, these are um, musings on this because it's an interesting thing to muse about. Um, I was looking at Love Perfected, Life Divine, which is such a beautiful book. And let me think about the pieces here. Uh, I'd had a conversation with Swamiji in 2010, which ends up being part of the introduction to that book, which, which I wrote. He asked me to write the introduction. He said, uh, God says that every desire must be fulfilled. Now, he put, how did he put it? The desire to be loved not merely, I'm quoting Swami, the desire to be loved not merely impersonally by God but personally by one other human being is so deep in the human heart, he said, God would not have implanted that desire in the heart so strongly if he didn't intend also to fulfill it. I mean, it's just like, it, Swamiji was so grounded and so human in addition to being so elevated in the way he thought. And that was um, Swamiji's way of saying this whole idea of soulmates, you know, must have some basis because it's so fundamental to the way that we're made. So balancing that against all the chaos that's created when we go chasing after this and all of the... Um, bodily imperatives that push us and blind us to other ways of thinking balanced against a statement like that. I just, I try to think, what is the difference between romance and soulmate? You know, like, how does this go? It all comes back to compulsion. You know, that if the, the master said about soulmates, it's, you're not necessarily complementary magnetic or complementary gender, anything like that. You can be two men, you can be two women, you don't have to be in the same place. You don't even have to be on the same planet, Master said. But before you're liberated, there has to be, that. it has to come back together. Now that implies that you have to be liberated at the same time. Swami couldn't really trace any of these things down because Master didn't talk about it all that much. But that implies that. But Master said, your soulmate could be on another planet and you could just meet them in vision. And then that would, that would satisfy that longing of the heart. Because before you can be liberated, you have to really want nothing else. You have to want God alone. So there can't be even any secret desire over here. And Master made that um, very uh, challenging statement that all desires have to be fulfilled before you're free. Swami said, even like the desire for an ice cream cone when I was a child? And Master said, yes. 
because if you think about it, even just mathematically, if anything is, I mean, what I mean by mathematically is just the metaphysics of it, if you still want the ice cream cone, you won't be able to direct all your energy up to God. So that has to be satisfied. Whether that means you eat the ice cream cone or not, but it has to be dissolved. So if this sort of longing for personal recognition has to be satisfied before you, you're free to let even that go. But it would, have to, it would have to come to you because the magnetism was automatic at that point. Even the thought of seeking it would be contrary um, to the whole idea because that would mean you're restless. You know, it, would have to, it would have to come to you in some way. So that could be applied even to all relationships, um, even those that are preliminary to that ultimate one, which is a simple way to say it, which is the difference between being very centered and feeling what God wants of you than to being very restless and being very nervous all the time that you're going to miss something if you don't get out there and try. You, you understand the difference? And it's all, it's all internal. It's all very, very internal. Because I think about, I, I didn't meet that woman in Medjugorje that Swami met, and I didn't meet her husband. I don't know how they met. I don't know how it, you know, it came about that they ended up getting married. But the Virgin Mary tells her to marry her. I'm certain that um, that girl recognized her husband, or Mary told her it was her husband. But where does it all come from? When Master told Kamala to get married, she said, basically, you must be kidding, sir. But no, he wasn't. So it was a wholly different energy. You know, it's, it's, it's worth meditating as deeply as we're capable of meditating on this for a whole lot of reasons. One is for our own well-being. Secondly, because it's just such a confusing mess in our culture at this particular time. It just, it might get worse, but it's hard to imagine, you know. It's just a torturous reality for everybody. And nobody knows what they're doing. Very few people know what they're doing. So whatever clarity we could possibly bring to the situation would be nice. Or even, even if we're not experts, just whatever serious thought we bring to this instead of um, the self-destructive chaos, which is what we're working with right now. Anyway, so I think it's a very important part of our... I mean, Swami Kriyananda stopped being a monk and got married. He was like a married man for like seven years entirely because he said somebody had to set some kind of an example and he needed to set Ananda as a householder community and he realized that nobody else could do it but him. And then once it was set, that marriage did not last and he very happily went back to being a monk. But it couldn't have happened if he hadn't done that. I mean, so it's... I, I'm not saying that all of us can sacrifice our personal lives on the level that he was able to, but it's just an important part of what we're all trying to work out, and it's something we have to kind of all put our heads together on and um, do our best to be channels for some higher awareness on this issue. All right. I've talked with hardly breathing and giving nobody a chance. Does anybody have anything to say about this? Comments, thoughts, questions? All right. Oh, wait, there's one back there. Interstitial. 
for those the recording, that's a joke from the break. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I, I noticed in this section of the book that it seems that um, a lot of the things that Swami recorded were things that were for very particular individuals. And uh, it might, to me, that makes sense as to why he might have left them for the very last book. Oh, um, yes. Because oh, yeah. they were, um, and, and so I haven't been here for every single class, but right. a few of these things have come up where you can say, I bet he was saying that to one particular person who needed to hear it in those words or said that way or whatever. And we'll, I'm sure we'll see more of these. The only thing is that Swamiji explains it when he felt it needed to be explained, and he doesn't when he doesn't. You know, so some of those very strong statements, Swami makes no effort to mitigate them. This one he did eventually, saying, you know, let me make it clear that Master wasn't against marriage. You know, sometimes he was impressed, sometimes he thought it was... But Master didn't think much of marriage. You know, he, he didn't think much of... Because when Swami was, first came there and... Swami said something to him, their very first meeting, you know, maybe marriage is good for some people, but I don't see it for myself. And Master said, it's not good for very many people. <laughs> I mean, he was just, you know, when, when they see past it, Swami said to us many times during the last years, I mean, he would often be talking, I mean, he would say it, he would be talking to 10 people or 10 couples, you know, everybody with him was married, all, almost all his close Almost all the people who really worked with him all the time we were close to him were all couples. And he, he looked at a whole table of us at one point and he said, I know, I know you're all married, I know, he said, but once you're out of that delusion, he said, you cannot imagine how you could ever have been caught by it. And he said that many different times. He said, when you're in it, it's so real, but when you're out of it, it is so transparent and unattractive. Because you actually recognize what you're really looking for. But that doesn't mean you couldn't. I mean, that's, that's that whole other level of, uh, of, of friendship and partnership. And I'll just throw in one last really odd thing. See, where is this written? You know, I, I meditated on this for a lot because it was really interesting. It, it might be in the either, the, it's in the, I believe it's in the Renunciate Order for the New Age. I'm pretty sure it's in that book. He says, essentially, you know, the monasticism is really a great life and it's probably the best life. But there's a certain something that you'll miss if you don't, if you're not married. And he just leaves it. He doesn't modify it. There's something, you know, just very dear and very sweet. I think he used the word sweetness. There's a certain kind of sweetness that you will miss. And I thought, just, wow, it's all so honest. You know, it's just like, there it is. And he, I, I sort of looked for other, if he was still alive, I would really ask him to talk about that. But if one stands back, one can see it, because that's that desire to be recognized. But the problem is, and, and the whole problem of it is, is not that that desire is not okay. It's that almost nobody actually can make it work. And so you end up Instead of having what you imagine is possible, you have something that isn't like that. And you get, it just, and it just gets crazy. But then it drives you to God. I have no answers either. There you have it. I guess that's why you all have nothing to say. <laughs> yes, Saranya. <coughs> 
I almost don't know where to start. <laughs> okay. She says, I don't know where to start. Start in the middle and then we'll work from, the, out from there. Uh, I think that marriage is not just, if you're going into a marriage looking for that, someone who's going to satisfy every need and desire and be your best friend and every, every, everything, then you are going to be disappointed. It's not going to necessarily happen. And I think that marriage is a lot about learning to um, sacrifice, let go of your, what your, you know, your little thing that you want, you know, the whole thing of expanding our consciousness. Try being a parent and not expanding your consciousness. You have to know when the baby is hungry or tired or, or cold or, you know, without being in that baby's body. And the same thing when your mate is grouchy, you have to know ahead of time that he's grouchy because he's hungry or <laughs> tired. Yeah. You know, so it, it, there are a lot of, of lessons that you learn in a marriage. And if you just go in it looking for what's in it for me, forget it. Well, see, Sarah, you're already functioning at a much higher level. And see, so this, no, seriously, this is where Master said, a bow tie and a, a nice shade of lipstick, the romantic music, and then the music stops, and then it's just a mess. But by the time you recognize, oh, I'm not really in this for me, I'm in this for how I can expand my consciousness and learn to love and learn to be unselfish. Most people need to be in families because how else will they learn? Most people need to be parents. Most people need to be spouses. Because otherwise, they just live for themselves and they get nowhere. That's why I'm saying it's, it's only at a certain karmic level does it become appropriate for one to really, instead of just following that impulse, to really resist it. But only if you have the capacity and the opportunity to be as selfless and as giving you know, all because you want to rather than because you have to. When we were young nuns, I remember Swami saying to us, you know, think how hard a mother works to take care of a new baby. He said, you must work as, as hard as that and more for the good of the world. And so you have to be able to be impersonal enough. I mean, a mother takes care of a baby because she has to. She gets pregnant I mean, nowadays you can terminate pregnancies, but once you're pregnant, you know, it's not a matter of opinion anymore. It's your body's going to be used by that child. That child's going to be born out of your body. You're going to take care of it because you want to and or you have to, either one. But to be able to be that motivated without that compulsion is that's what, that's what gives you the karmic right to not carry out that duty. Um, and in the meantime, you find yourself, as you have, you know, in a very expanded life situation, and you've taken it like a devotee, which is, you know it's all about transcending. And that's, that is the whole point. And that's where Swami said, there is a certain sweetness that you will miss out on. Because when you really can enter into it with that spirit, and if the people in your world are also refined, you know, then, then something, I mean, it's absolutely, it's absolutely lovely. And thank God we have examples in our life of really noble couples. And Master admired, admired nobility. So some of Swami's favorite movies, a few of them, you know, were 
Uh, there was a movie called Random Harvest and the movie An Affair to Remember, not anything that was made recently, but the very first one. Those two I remember because they're romantic movies, but the, the, the love is, is selfless and noble. And, you know, he, he just, he, 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 liked, he liked to show us those movies because, because he knew that we were all caught up in the, in the compelling nature of human love. So he wanted to show us what it could be like. I remember specifically there was a young woman who was just, her whole relationship in her marriage was the opposite of what you're saying. It was all, what about me, what about me, what about me? And he, I, he remember he invited her over and he showed her, I think it was Random Harvest. He didn't just say, you come over and watch this movie. But there was a group of people and uh, later he said, I, I really wanted her to see it. I was hoping she would, you know, just get a different perspective on what she's doing. So yes, 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 a hundred times, yes. That's why Swami got married. He wanted to show us what it could really be like. And, you know, he was all, it was just, you, you understand it, so you, you picked it up from the right thread. Is that satisfying to you? Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And, and what Swamiji says right now, and, and when he wrote about when he got married, which was September of 85, you know, I, this is what I was just working on. He wrote, he said, no, the world doesn't want examples of monks and nuns now. They're not really interested in monks and nuns. And even monks and nuns aren't interested in monks and nuns. You know, it's just like, it's just not happening anywhere, he said, in America or in the West or the East. It's just not happening. Everybody wants examples of, of, of uplifted family life and uplifted marriage. He said, that's just where we're going. You know, in the ancient high times, the sages all had wives and children. You know, there was a, an elevated quality to family life for all those reasons that you're, you're pointing out. But we are so far away from that now that this is again what I was saying. This is one of the things that Ananda is doing. It's, it's trying to develop, you know, what it would look like if we all actually really could carry this off. Swami said it'll take a few generations just because there's just too much working against us at the moment. Fair enough? Yeah. Okay. Ramani down at the end. Um, Navashan controls it from the back, so just... Anyway, go ahead. Um, sometime in my life, I was talking with uh, Mary Kretzman some years ago, and um, we were talking about marriage and about um, good relationships, and she pulled out some uh, something that Master had written about how both a man should treat his wife. And about how the wife should treat the man. Yeah. Yes, but and there was a lot more about how the man should treat her, his wife. Uh, at least in what I saw, there was well, a lot. Maybe you, maybe <laughs> I'm sure it's... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't remember it being distorted. I remember it being pretty much... Okay, anyway. Uh-huh. Um, but I just remember particularly, <laughs> probably because of I was thinking of um, the man should, the woman should really have her own rooms and her own house, if possible, and her own, be, her friends should be respected, 
by the husband, and she should be the, able the, to have what, time. Let me let me just instead mm-hmm. of bringing random pieces, let me give the whole the context of that because that went around Ananda, and everybody gasped at it, you know, in 1972 when we all saw it. But um, Master described a much more impersonal kind of relationship, a much more, you know, we are two friends living side by side. We are not looking to be all in all to one another. And it was just so much more impersonal and, and just so much more realistic in so many ways that it just, it was so out, far outside the box of what uh, young Americans were thinking. And, and it was, but it was all very good advice. But it, it's very good advice that you, you understand much later in your life. It's really hard to understand when you're 20. You understand it better when you're 40 or 50. Because then it makes sense. Because then you just sort of see. I mean, it's all about expectations and delusions. And you know, in, in the Indian context, which is in the multi-generational context, in the ideal multi-generational arranged marriage context, which doesn't exist anywhere anymore. But your marriage was just part of your life. And, and it was one of many relationships that you had. You, you lived in context with your own family, with your husband's family, with your cousins and your uncles and all of this. And your husband or your wife was one of your relationships. And, and it's only when, when our society is fragmented as far as our society is, has now that you have one man and one woman, or now you have one woman, one woman, one man, one man, whatever you have, but you have two people who are bound to each other, and they just are all by themselves. And, and so, naturally, they expect and need much more from each other, almost always, than one person can offer. But if you're living with all those other relatives, you don't have that same expectation. So community helps a lot because then you have a lot of close relationships. It used to be so funny at Ananda. Partly it was because there was so much monasticism that even married couples were very seldom affectionate in public. And, but what would happen was because we, the, so many of us knew each other so well and we had such, whatever you would call, strong psychic ties that... Visitors would come to the community and they really couldn't tell which of these crowds of people were actually married to each other because the, the connections were so strong that it, it was very confusing because people don't see those kind of connections unless there's a marriage relationship. And because there wasn't a lot of, uh, of outward affection, there were no clues. You just couldn't tell who was going to go home, home, home with whom. It just it was just wasn't there to see it. But it was much, it's much more wholesome and makes marriage much more possible. And then also, what Master says is is true, but it's not popular or comprehensible. You know, have your own rooms, take separate vacations. Other parts of it are just obvious. And basically, what it is is have a lot of respect for each other. Just have a huge amount of respect for each other and don't think for a minute that you own each other. That's really what it comes down to. But there's other really sweet things. You know, reminisce often about your courtship. You know, 
and 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 then you know just all these li little pieces of advice that just make a huge amount of difference. You know, the older I got, the more I realized how much wisdom there was in what he said. Wisdom. But I didn't know it when I read it. We, we all laughed about it. I mean, we, did, we couldn't reject it because Master wrote it, but it was a cause for, um, what do I call it? Amusement and dismay is what it really basically, nobody quite knew what to do with it. Because we were all 20 years old together, all in our 20s, and we were all just stupid. <laughs> you know, we just didn't know anything. <laughs> but you, you think you do. So, yeah, that was, that was a very good one. I don't know where that stuff is. I'm sure you can find it. It must be online somewhere. Oh, the wisdom of Yogananda. Of course, it would be right in there. The wisdom of Yogananda, spiritualizing relationships. So, yes, of course, that's where it would be printed. Fantastic. No, and, it's, and it's all very good. But you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sort of joking about this because I've had this 40-year history with all of this stuff. And, you know, we, you have to learn these teachings a step at a time. And you have to look at it and you have to think about, what does this really mean to me? How much of this can I really grasp? Just exactly where I started, the art and the science. If Master said it, you can't throw it away. But if it doesn't make any sense to you, you can't just paste it on either. You just have to think, Wow, that's interesting. I think whatever it is, and I did this for years, I think I'll put that on the shelf and see if I grow into it. You know, or see if when I look at it in a few years from now, if it makes more sense to me than it does now. And pretty much without exception, everything that I've had to put aside, I've grown into, which I'm extremely pleased to say. But it, I didn't reject it, I didn't fight it, and I didn't get a complex because I couldn't live up to it. So those are all the pieces that you need to do. It's just like, as I said to my friend, wow, you actually thought that applied to you. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> and he sort of said to me, like, why didn't you think it applied to you? I just sort of, I, I didn't have an answer for that. It's just, it, it seems so preposterous that I could live that way that I just never crossed my mind. It's like when some of the people tried to live without heat. You know, how could you live without heat? Or go barefoot through this winter? I mean, people tried all kinds of things. Just because, why not? But I didn't. I thought I was just too cowardly. Well, any other comments or thoughts before we call it a night? So we did two today. We did uh, 273 and 274.